The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Globally, you see that actually, you know, prevention investment in health systems is 5% or less, you know, I mean, it's an absolute minimal amount of investment of something that can, of course, divert significant costs down the line. But the challenge, of course, is those bigger costs in secondary and tertiary care don't go away if you want immediately if you want to invest. You know, so there's this horrendous sort of pinch point when you're saying you need to invest in prevention for outcomes to come. But at the same time, you've still got to invest in your primary, secondary and tertiary care. That was Dr. Katie Tryon, a surgeon by trade who now works as Director of Health Strategy of Vitality, an insurance company that aims to incentivize its customers to live healthier lives. The idea that spending money on prevention is a strategy that governments around the world will no doubt be considering as their healthcare budgets balloon following the pandemic. Welcome back to The Exchange, a podcast from Reuters Breaking Views that explores the big questions on the minds of business leaders and governments. I'm your host, Amy Donlan, coming to you from London. How can governments reduce their healthcare costs? What can ordinary people do to change unhealthy habits and live longer, healthier lives? Why is prevention so far down the list of priorities of politicians that are facing a bleak future? People are living unhealthier lives, meaning the costs of treating obesity, heart diseases and many cancers will continue to go up. And this is having an impact on an already depleted global workforce. I sat down with Tryon to try and answer some of these questions. Tryon has worked in the National Health Service in Britain and reckons the problems facing the UK are actually global. But there is hope that these systems can change. It will take money and a lot of elbow grease. Take a listen. Katie, you are very welcome to The Exchange. Thank you very much for having me. Well, we are sitting in London and you have worked around the world in many capacities. You've actually been a doctor yourself working in the NHS. Uh, So I thought you'd be a good person to talk to about the state of healthcare services in this country and beyond, because we are seeing an awful lot of pressure on healthcare services, as in big backlogs after COVID, and then questions as for how healthcare is going to be paid for in the future. So I would just like you to maybe just tell us how you think healthcare services are doing in this country at the moment, as in the headlines that we see, is it as bad, do you think, as people are characterizing it versus what we've seen sort of historically? So I think there's a lot baked into that question, obviously. Um, I think what we, the big challenges that we're seeing are a short-term squeeze on a long-term problem in healthcare services. And that's not just in the UK, this is globally. You know, when when I started looking at healthcare services 20 plus years ago, we were already talking about the fact that, you know, fundamentally globally, healthcare services had always been set up to manage, you know, acute injuries, illnesses in a secondary care setting, big hospitals, you know, dealing with kind of big, meaty medical or surgical problems. And even 20 odd years ago, we were already saying, but actually, you know, your big issue is that's not how healthcare is evolving. You know, we now have significant issues with right, what we would call primary care issues, whether it's risk factors, whether it's conditions that can be managed outside a hospital. But fundamentally, the infrastructure and the manpower hasn't been set up to be able to kind of deal with that monumental shift in the way kind of healthcare 
has moved. And a lot of that is because of the successes in healthcare. I mean, we sort of shouldn't forget that when the NHS was first sort of brought to fruition, you know, it's it's addressed so many issues and provides such great care in so many ways that actually it's it means people are living longer. And, you know, and as a result, some of these other issues are coming to, you know, are coming to the surface. So I think there's this long term shift that the entire industry is having to make around moving more into primary care. And like I say, that means infrastructure investment potentially needs to change, manpower investment needs to change, the entire kind of construct of healthcare needs to move, sort of move with the times. Of course, what we're seeing at the moment, globally, again, not just in the UK, is, you know, this is this is a long-term systemic challenge. And then we've had this massive acute injury on the health services, right, which came with COVID, where all, you know, a huge amount of healthcare resource was diverted, you know, towards the kind of the critical need at the time. And, and unfortunately, of course, that means that a lot of the things that should have been being dealt with over that period, you know, are now are now sitting in backlogs, waiting lists, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I think I think we have got a really acute injury and it's definitely something that we're seeing you know, globally. But I do think there are these systemic changes that need to be made to the health system. And that I mean, in terms of like tackling that backlog, you'd imagine that's the first task that most countries have to get on top of is to try and get their cancer services and all that stuff back to the way it was sort of pre-COVID. But if you were sort of imagining a healthcare service that you were going to create from scratch, what do you think that would look like in today's world? Yeah, I mean, I think I think you, by the way, have to do both of those things in parallel, right? You can't crowd out, you know, the, the important with the urgent. You know, you do need to be thinking about these long term pieces and, and plenty of people are. You know, I think I think for me, it's really thinking through what is that? What are the requirements right from prevention and getting people to live longer in healthier lives? And how can we encourage people to do that? How can we set up? the constructs appropriately, both inside the healthcare environment as well as outside the healthcare environment to encourage that. Then how can we manage primary care effectively so that people are being treated at the right level, in the right place, at the right time for those sorts of conditions that need to be managed in a primary care setting in a longer term way? And then what needs to go through to kind of secondary and even tertiary care, but actually starting to think much more clearly about what care needs to be in what place in the system so that people are kind of accessing it at the right point um, and through through the right mechanism, essentially. But I think significant investment on the prevention side. I mean, globally, you see that actually, you know, prevention investment in health systems is 5% or less. You know, I mean, it's an absolute minimal amount of investment of something that can, of course, divert costs, you know, significant costs down the line. But the challenge, of course, is those bigger costs in secondary and tertiary care don't go away if you want immediately if you want to invest you know so there's there's this horrendous sort of pinch point when you're saying you need to invest in prevention for outcomes to come but at the same time you've still got to invest in your primary secondary and tertiary care so it's it's very challenging to kind of manage that prevention agenda and and the investment in the prevention agenda and do you think that that lack of investment in prevention, because I even remember hearing like Barack Obama in the US talk about that, about how they weren't spending enough money on prevention. I, then I think that the top dollars he was talking about, like one dollar in every hundred was spent on kind of prevention. Do you think that the reason that if they can't spend that money governments is because they are managing just sort of a crisis even before COVID of just they don't have enough, they don't have enough money to pay for treating the people that are already ill that prevention just so falls so far behind because there's like we're we're dealing with this issue. 
I think there are so many reasons prevention falls further behind. I think there is a bit of, like you say, kind of, you know, attention and focus gets pulled towards, you know, the imminent need in front. I think there's definitely that. I think there is this issue of the kind of double financial counting in the shorter term that that can result if you're investing in prevention and, you know, and all the rest of it. I think there is significant concern around what the most effective preventative me measures can be at a population level. I think there is, you know, there's a lot of research and there's a lot of great evidence coming out around, around what you can do around prevention. But, you know, that's, that's building up over time. And I think it's, you know, it's really challenging, particularly when you're thinking about running these sorts of very large scale studies to see what preventative measures work. You know, it's not the same as looking at whether a treatment works or not in a patient group. You know, you're having to take large populations, see if you can inspire, incentivize, encourage people to do things differently and then see what the kind of long term effects are. So I think it's taken a long time to kind of build up that science and know exactly what it you know what it is you want to do. I think there's also a huge challenge in prevention, which we've been trying to address as a business, which is what exactly are you asking people to do? You know, because I think we often have you know a multitude of things. We want everyone to quit smoking, lose weight, do more physical activity, eat healthily, um, improve their mental well-being, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what you really need to think about with the prevention agenda is taking each of the individuals and thinking, what is the most important thing? that they can do to improve their health and get them started on that rather than the more kind of, I suppose, the historically, a lot of the prevention agenda has been more brush brushstroke. But I think with the advent of data and, you know, being able to actually look at the data and analyse the data more effectively, I think a more targeted approach to prevention and actually thinking through different populations of people, what is it that you're asking them to do? What's the most effective way of asking them to do that? And how can you support them in making those changes? I think is you know, is the way the prevention agenda is going to move rather than the historic more brush stroke kind of approach. And do you think that there is a country that is starting to do this or is doing it well that like is, is serves as a template or is everyone sort of in the same <laughs> sort of in the same boat starting from like zero? I think there are pockets of brilliance. And I think, you know, it's very dependent on the way in which the health system works. So where would these pockets of brilliance be? Where where can we see that? So I think what what has been very successful are things like vaccination programs. You know, I think we've seen some some great vaccination programs prior to COVID, you know, of actually being able to encourage populations to take up vaccinations across the board. Some of them have been in Africa, some of them have been in Europe. And I think you can you've seen some really brilliant things. I mean, obviously the COVID vaccinations was, you know. Uh, was an extraordinary story, I think, of all of our lifetimes, actually. Um, so I think you can see some brilliant things in, in sort of the vaccination space. When you look at some of the primary prevention stuff, I think there's there's been some very effective work that's been done on smoking cessation, on uh, on weight loss in some areas. I think, you know, if you look at the way somewhere like Japan has gone with it, it's much more rigorous on that with employers measuring employees and, you know, really having a more kind of hardline approach to incentivizing people to lose weight, but it has shown good results. Would that be acceptable in every environment? You know, I think I think that's the sort of key to it. And I think it comes down to, you know, that question of actually what is appropriate 
for what population at what time and, and what would people do? I think in the UK, actually, when we look at, so if you think about prevention in terms of what I would call primary prevention, which is all around the, you know, before a disease occurs. So whether it's, you know, weight loss, smoking cessation, physical activity, those sorts of things, that would be what I would call primary prevention. Secondary prevention is then when you're thinking about kind of early detection. So things like screening programs and then tertiary would be around the management of conditions. And I think what's very good in the UK, I mean, we have some fantastic in that secondary prevention piece. We have fantastic cancer screening programs. Really fantastic. I mean, I think our breast screening program is, you know, is, it should be lauded worldwide. I think it's a really brilliant program. We've also got fantastic bowel cancer screening and cervical cancer screening. We've always had a challenge with uptake on bowel cancer screening. Um, and I think that, again, goes to how do you get the right people to do the tests at the right time? Because actually the system that's in place for that is actually really, really effective. Mm -hmm. So I think we've got some great stuff there. I also think we've got some great stuff around chronic condition management, so around hypertension and diabetes that happens within the NHS. So I do think there are these pockets of brilliance. And I think it is a case of, you know, really thinking through what is it that will be most efficacious for your population? What can you get people to do and how can you change it? But the thing with, with something like behaviour change is... It's got to fit within the environment in which you're operating, you know, and, and I always give the Japan example because I think that is quite an extreme example that potentially wouldn't necessarily. So how did that work exactly in Japan? You work for a company, a private company, you go into work. They you're... have annual screens and they are incentivized based on based on weight, uh, weight circumference results. OK, so. Because I mean, this this thing about weight, I think, is such an interesting kind of debate that's starting. And even in this country, in the past few weeks, we've seen the UK talk about this Wegovy, the weight loss drug that Nova Nordisk has come out with, um, that they'll do a pilot and they'll see basically whether that would help. And your prevention idea, I assume the idea is that if you reduce the weight of people who are sort of chronically obese, that hypertension, cancers, all of these things that are so costly to treat that you're sort of trying to prevent them in the future. But does that sort of suggest then that this idea of trying to change the behavior of your population in sort of healthy choices, so going out for runs, being more active, eating healthier, that they've sort of given up on that idea that that's not working and that, you know, they've been telling everyone for a long time, like the eat your five a day and, you know, all of those kind of messages. First of all, it, it definitely does work. And, you know, we've got some great research to show that it does work both within us as a business, but also kind of globally, there's great research to show it does work. And I think, you know, I absolutely support the government in, you know, in, in trialing some of these medications. You know, I think I think it's I think there's a lot to still learn and understand. I think the results are very encouraging, um, but I think there's a lot to learn and understand. And I think you can't you can't ignore the medication, you know, possibilities. But I think at the same time, everyone would say it has to happen in partnership with the behaviour change elements to it. So even in, you know, the government's proposal, it's still encouraging weight loss medication to be part of a kind of bigger programme around weight management. And I think no one, you know, no one would advocate for an environment where you're doing it outside a kind of more comprehensive behaviour change programme, like, you know, like we encourage as a business for people to to undertake. And I think there's, you know, there's, there's good evidence to show that the sustainability, even in the presence of medication of any weight loss is, you know, is going to be only manifest if you actually make some behaviour changes around that. So I, I was curious as well to, to talk to you about your business model, right? So you are an insurance company and full disclosure to our listeners, I am a customer 
of yours. The idea, I can explain it, is you encourage your customers to live healthier lives, imagining that it's better for the customer because they're healthier and they don't get sick and better for you as a business because you don't have to pay out as many claims because your, your customers are healthier. I'm sort of curious about why do you think that every insurer doesn't have that model? Like as in what you guys seem to be quite specific. And I know that there are other insurers who do something similar, but it isn't across the board globally that insurers are sort of telling their customers, we will give you all of these perks if you are healthier. They just sort of like you pay your premium and you just go off and live your life seems to be the the, the sort of traditional model. Yeah. I mean, we've been lucky enough to be doing this for a really long time. And and really the inception of the business was around this concept of shared value. So what is good for you as a customer is good for us as an insurer and is good for society. So it was the shared value model between the sort of three big players in this system. I think the challenge for people is, you know, we do significantly invest every year in prevention and encouraging people to live you know live healthier lives and that is we significantly invest in tools and services to help people do that and we significantly invest in the incentives that we provide individuals to actually kind of follow that that program and i think that's a real challenge i mean i think for other organizations that don't have it as part of their dna in the same way that we've talked about embedding prevention within a government agenda i think it can be really hard if you haven't kind of started on that road and stay true to it you know the the benefits are manifest of course to us to our members and to society but i think if i think if you come later in the game i think it, it can be a very hard pivot for an organization to make and is this something that you could see governments sort of taking on as an idea that they would incentivize their populations to live healthier and i don't know what that would look like exactly maybe it would be tax breaks or there would be some incentives for you if you were living a particularly unhealthy life that you were using in this country let's say the NHS you were you know your healthcare bill was very high that there would be some way to incentivize people to live healthier which again would bring down this humongous cost for almost every single country around the world so we've always we've always sort of stayed in communication with you know with various kind of members of the UK government to talk about what we've done to share information you know we're very happy to kind of you know share our data and our learnings and things like that um to help sort of progress the agenda and i think it's part of a wider piece around you know around prevention within you know within more of a public sector environment and i think you know i, I think there is a lot of there's a lot of progress that has been made. You know, there's a lot of progress still to be made in that space. But I think there are multiple kind of tools at, you know, at disposal to be able to encourage, you know, encourage individuals to live live healthier lives. But like you say, the kind of the, the obvious benefits that, that will be manifest down the line. I mean, another thing I suppose that we're again seeing over the past few months, which I think is striking fear into some people, healthcare is saying there's a huge opportunity with AI and artificial intelligence and that sort of machine learning in the way that we're seeing it evolve now. How do you see that? Do you see that cutting costs for, for healthcare providers, for governments that, you know, that machine learning could help in that way? So the thing I think that's really interesting about AI is people talk about it like it's a thing. But it's actually a topic, right? I mean, it's hugely broad. It's sort of almost like saying, do we think healthcare has a role in the world? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's a massive, massive topic and it incorporates so many things, whether it's machine learning or data science or, you know, so many things kind of in it. And I think 
you know, I think there are there are plenty of spaces, you know, plenty of of cases where various things within the enormous topic that is AI that will be incredibly useful to the healthcare sector broadly. Do you well, see what I mean? Yeah, I do. Well, let's be specific then. I think the fear thing that I'm talking about is that your job could be replaced by a machine that is able to learn all the things that you can do, right? That's sort of the, that's the fear side on the employment side. Mm -hmm. But if you're in healthcare and a machine can learn what a doctor knows, as in how to spot various types of cancers, you know, sort of all sorts of research, like all of these things that it could be done, as in, would that be a huge help? Is that, that's sort of the thing I'm kind of getting at, is that you have a, shor a shortage of healthcare workers, right? Is that something that that could help? Or I, mean, I think I think support through. I mean, you look at it already. You know, in terms of how we do data analytics, how you spot most at risk. I mean, to some extent, that is a you know that is machine learning in action already. You know, to facilitate medics or other healthcare professionals to look in the right direction for you know who and how and when etc so i think i think we are going to see a lot more facilitation within you know within the healthcare environment and i think we're already seeing some of that certainly in kind of in africa we were seeing a lot of technology coming in and people trying to because there was just such a chronic shortage of of healthcare professionals particularly in more remote areas so you know you do see a lot of um organizations coming in to try and see if there are ways in which they can essentially scale a very minimal workforce into into different environments but i think like i say i think it's i think there is a big topic and i think there are areas that will be extraordinarily health, helpful in healthcare and i think you know, I, I, I suppose I'm less on the, you know, the bogeyman of of AI and more of the, you know, in the same way that clinical advances have meant that we can cure cancers. You know, these are these are good things. You know, and actually, if we can use data science, if we can use data analytics, if we can use machine learning, and we can use various other tools to improve the care that we, you know, that that populations are receiving, I think, you know. I think that can be can be a good thing. Yeah. And I just I suppose maybe lastly, I'm sort of curious if you think about where we are now, we've been through COVID, as you say, there is, you know, a big job to tackle the sort of the legacy of that. But we also are heading into, in many countries, an aging population that is not does not appear to be getting healthier. Are you positive, negative? What is your view on how healthcare is going to evolve over the next probably decade. Yeah. So I think there's absolutely no doubt it will evolve. <laughs> it has to evolve. And I think it has to evolve in certain ways. I mean, I think the treatments and the focus of, you know, some of the research you're seeing is is evolving in terms of kind of what the clinical guidelines and excellence is going to be in the future and 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 how we're going to manage some of the conditions that are resulting in in the aging populations. I think that has to change. I think, you know, we also, as we talked about earlier, have to change the infrastructure. You know, this is not about big hospitals for acute situations. This is about managing people much more in a kind of community environment. But that goes again against what you're seeing, like Boris Johnson's big thing was I built 40 hospitals. You know, this is infrastructure seems to be, again, the focus of a lot of governments. I Yes, I think there is. If you look at the way I think headline grabbing hospitals but if you look at where a lot of investment is actually going it is 
maybe not fast enough, but moving towards primary care settings and community settings. And I think people are patently aware that we need to, you know, that we need to invest significantly, like you say, with the aging population in in that space. And I think, you know, the relationship between kind of healthcare and social care is something that is ever evolving and and needs to evolve because I think there is I think historically people had seen that as an absolute black line but I think again with the aging population and, and the changing demographics of healthcare I think you're seeing that it's it's a grayer line you know and, and that relationship has to has to change and in terms of who pays for all of this do you think companies like yours are going to be more relied upon to to help pay for I guess some of the things that need to to happen in healthcare that that you that we don't seem to be able to I mean not governments aren't flush with cash they are trying to invest more but there does seem to be a limit on on what they can invest I think I think it's going to be a lot of different organizations having to get behind this and get involved in it you know I think all employers are going to for example have to get behind this you know and actually think about how are they supporting their workforces so that they can you know age and good health and what is you know what is the employer's role in all of this as well as you know like you say I mean from from our perspective you know how can we get the prevention agenda up the agenda sorry for want of poor English but but essentially um you know how can we how can we ensure that whether it's employers private sector companies public sector that we are investing in prevention because we have just got this bubble of people sort of getting older and getting sicker and actually as a result you know if we don't do something when people are kind of younger and in in reasonable health you know we are going to balloon the problem that, that already exists so I think it's going to require just a lot more of a kind of integrated way of thinking about how we address some of these these problems because they're not to some extent like you say they're not classic health sector only problems you know we can't actually address it in the those silos you know it definitely bleeds out into other areas um, and there's going to be a lot of kind of stakeholder engagement around getting behind a single purpose like that fantastic thank you katie so so interesting to talk to you absolute pleasure anytime thanks for tuning in This podcast was produced by Katrina Hamlin in Hong Kong. Subscribe to our sister podcast, The Views Room, on Apple Podcasts, Megaphone, or wherever you like to listen. I'm Kim Vanell. Join me every morning for a roundup of what's happening at home and around the world. From the front line in Ukraine. Extraordinary how these people adjust and uh, even laugh when you take cover. To the heart of U.S. politics. When Trump said that he expected to be arrested, it seems like he was trying to get ahead of the story. We bring you everything you need to know in 10 minutes. For your essential daily briefing, follow Reuters World News wherever you get your podcasts.